This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode, and thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. And what a treat we have for you. What you're going to get in this podcast is the first half of an exclusive interview I've recorded with arguably my favourite film director, the great William Friedkin. Billy and I got together because we were doing a commentary for Cruising, which is just coming out on Blu-ray on Aaron. If you've never seen Cruising, this is a really great way to see it. It's a brilliant transfer and it has a really good commentary with me and William Friedkin discussing all the issues around Cruising. But at the same time, I did an interview specially for the Kermit on Film podcast. Because it covers so much ground and it was so lengthy, we've split into two separate episodes. So you're going to get episode one now and the next podcast next week will have episode two of my interview with the great William Friedkin. Oh, and a word of warning, this episode contains some, well, let's be honest, a lot of strong language. I'm very glad to welcome to Kermit on Film, William Friedkin. Uh, Billy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Uh, the thing that we're about to do, in, uh, I think tomorrow night, is we, we're doing an, an onstage with To Live and Die in LA uh, in London. So let's start there, okay? Um, it's going to be, uh, I'm going to be talking to you and to Wang Chung, who did the score. For those who haven't seen To Live and Die in LA, which I think is now, has almost a better reputation than when it first opened. Um, describe the film. What, what's the film about? It's uh, about two secret service agents in Los Angeles who are mostly in the secret service was a branch, is a branch of the Treasury mm-hmm. Department, concerned with two major crimes, uh, counterfeiting and protecting the president. Yeah. That's what they do, or other dignitaries as designated by the president. Okay. And it turns out, you know, we see them as super G-men. But it, I met this, the guy who wrote his basically autobiographical novel yeah. about his time in the Secret Service. And a lot of them are crazy. They're batshit. <laughs> they're thrill seekers. And they're in many cases, not the sort of people you want around the president at all. Uh, And that's what intrigued me about the story. It mainly has to do with counterfeiting. And the Secret Service agent, who was my technical advisor, got this counterfeiter out of prison. Yeah. Yeah. 
to make all the money for us. And I read a story that that you attracted the attentions of the law as a result because they thought you were actually counterfeiting money. Yeah, uh, a, a couple of kids, one of whom was the son of one of the uh, stagehands. Yeah took some of the counterfeit money that had only been printed on one side. <laughs> and he took it with a friend of his to a grocery store, and they bought a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and the fellow at the checkout said, uh, oh, give me a minute, will you, son? And went in the back, and within 10 minutes, the Secret Service came down there, and they grilled these kids. Where'd you get this money? Who made this? And they told him their father worked on a film. And uh, one day, the uh, state attorney general, a fellow named Robert Bonner, yeah. at the time, called me. Mr. Friedkin, yeah. He said, I'd like you to come down and let's talk about why you printed all that money. I said, well, I did it for a movie. He said, well, Mr. Friedkin, it's illegal to do it for any reason. Uh, the only people that can print money is the U.S. <laughs> Treasury. And I said, uh, all right, well, I said, you get a warrant and I'll come down and see you. He, and he said, oh, you're not going to play that game, are you? I said, it's not a game. You think I'm going to come down voluntarily, you know, so you can have fun with me for five, six hours, whatever? And I'll have to lawyer up. I said, no, get a warrant and I'll come and see you without a lawyer. The warrant never came. and But there were many stories of people who had attempted to counterfeit using that movie as a training film. Really? Yes. Wow. Federal agent, excuse me. Ma'am, I'd like to see the bills that man just handed you, please. You wouldn't uh, have a pencil with an eraser that I could use for you? Sure. Okay, thank you. U.S. Secret Service. The money was that good. It was, when it was printed on both sides and aged, you couldn't tell it from real money. It was $20 bills. Okay. So this feeds into something which is, uh, <coughs> you know, a theme of many of your films. I remember the the tagline for the British poster of To Live and Die in LA. It said, the director of The French Connection is on the streets again. And they were making that kind of connection. But what seems to me is... That from your very earliest career, you were making documentaries in which you were getting inside police forces, getting into police stations. And, you know, you've always had. I once, Sonny Grosso once said you would have made a great cop. He said you would have made a. <laughs> it wasn't my goal in life, let's put it that way. <laughs> but that thing about making dramas that have the smack of reality, sometimes, you know, almost dangerously so. That is something that you've always done, yeah? Well, the life of a cop in homicide or robbery detail, uh, 
it's extraordinarily dramatic, you know, and very often they come down on both sides of the law. It takes a cop with the personality of a bad guy to be a good cop. He's got to know how the cops think. That's the premise of a wonderful book called uh, uh, Red Dragon, which was made into a film yeah. a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, and Red Dragon is about a profiler, an FBI profiler, who has the soul of a serial killer and so is therefore adept at finding serial killers yeah, and yeah. locating them. When you were... So you started with, with your police films, with the documentary, in which you, you got inside a police station and you, and you found out what, what the life of the, of the policeman was really like. Can you tell me if this is back in the 1960s, right? Yes, well, my uncle was a very famous cop in Chicago with a really interesting story. Mm -hmm. And uh, he always intrigued me, and I was always terrified of him. He was a huge guy. He was built like a professional wrestler, and he had a bald head, and he had a Doberman Pinscher dog <laughs> that I used to ride on the dog's back like a horse <laughs> when I was a little boy. And he had all these characters hanging around with him. And I got a, a sense of that life from working at my uncle's liquor store when okay. I was a young kid. And you were attracted to it? Was it something you thought, I want to do that? Or? No, I just found it interesting. I've, I found these guys and their stories, which they spoke about quite openly in front of me because I was a little kid. And they didn't think I was paying any attention. But my uncle's story is very interesting. Go on. He was a famous cop who would probably was probably one of the models for the untouchables. Okay. His name was Harry Lang. His partner was a guy called Harry Miller. And they were elite Chicago cops. And but they had a side life, which is they were on the take from the mob. Okay. Specifically, the head of the Chicago mob after Al Capone was a guy named Frank Nitty. And they, Frank the Enforcer, Nitty. And they knew Frank Nitty very well. And one day, the mayor of Chicago then was a man named Anton Cermak. Okay. And Mayor Cermak said to these two guys, you got to bring Nitty in. We got to clean up the town before the Democratic uh, Convention meets here. And they knew Nitty. They had free and open access to his office. Right. And one day, under orders from the mayor, they went into Nitty's office and shot Nitty in the stomach several times, and my uncle shot himself in the arm, claimed that Nitty shot him first. Wow. You can imagine the shot yeah. was straight down, not from Nitty's point of view. <laughs> it was later found that Nitty didn't keep a gun in his office. But Nitty survived, I think, eight bullets. Wow. He lived, and he brought 
you know, his lawyers brought charges against my uncle and his partner, and they had to resign from the police force because there was a whole brouhaha in the press. And my uncle became the personal bodyguard of Mayor Anton Cermak. And when Franklin Roosevelt was nominated for president in Miami, Florida, he was on the podium and nearby Mr. Roosevelt was Mayor Cermak. And a guy stood up in the crowd, a guy who was known as the anarchist, Gus Zangara, stood up and shot and killed Mayor Cermak. The question always was, who was he aiming at? They always thought that he was aiming at President Roosevelt to assassinate the incoming president. This was 1932. Right. And it then turned out that no, this was payback. He was aiming for your uncle. He was no, he was aiming for the mayor he was, and killed the mayor. And my uncle was his bodyguard, so that ended his career as a bodyguard. <laughs> and he opened a liquor store um, on the near uh, west side of Chicago. And I used to work there as a kid, but all his cop friends would stop by constantly, and I'd hear these stories. They were fascinating. All right, bring it here. Get your hands out of your pockets. What's my name? Doyle. What? Mr. Doyle. Come here. You pick your feet. Do you get over there? Get your hands on your head. Hold up. We told you people were coming back. We're gonna keep coming back here until you clean this bar up. Keep your eye on your neighbor. He dropped something that belongs to you. What is this? A fucking hospital here? Huh? Turn around, there, fella. What do we got here, huh? This belong to you? Huh? Stand up there, naughty. Get your hands on your fucking head. Get in there! You want to take a ride there, fat man? Oh, bullshit. Huh? Pay attention. We're going to ask questions later. When you made French Connection, you went out on uh, patrol with Sonny, Mm -hmm. uh, Sonny Grosso and Eddie Egan. And Sonny told me that you actually went into some of the busts they did with them as if you were if you were going no, in. I had a gun. I had a policeman special thirty eight, which they gave me to and so sometimes you were armed. I was armed with a thirty eight special. Okay, you'd say that like it's the most normal thing, Billy, but it was at the time. <laughs> it wouldn't be now. But like we'd go in, the scene in the all-black bar in the French Connection is verbatim the way it was. The shakedown scene. In several bars like that. Yeah. And everybody in that scene, by the way, was an undercover New York narcotics detective. All those guys playing the drug dealers and users, they were narcotics detectives. And... That scene Egan and Grasso used to do for fun every day. And when I started to go out with them, Eddie gave me a thirty-eight, and he said, cover the back. And I'd go to the back of the bar hoping that nobody would try to come out. So you were, you were literally effectively deputized as their third— Oh, I, I ran down suspects with them. Really? In the days when I could run. 
I couldn't walk down a suspect now. <laughs> Old age is not for sissies, Mark, I'm telling you. So, All of those days are behind me. I couldn't physically do what I did in those days. So were you always drawn to, I mean, you weren't frightened of any of that stuff. No. I mean, Sonny said that they would go out into cases that were actually quite dangerous. And he said, Billy just behaved like, that's why he said you should have been a cop. Well, I didn't have the soul of a cop, but I understood the drill, you know, and I wanted to get the feel of what it was like, certainly to be able to reflect it accurately in something like the French Connection. One of the things about I sent Hackman out to do the same thing. Hackman and Scheider. Hackman, so, who you thought has been miscast until the the finish, the film was finished, but you thought that Hackman playing Egan didn't Eddie Egan was um, was amazed that Hackman was going to play him. Yeah, Gene didn't have the right New York accent. He was great. He well, was it, great. Yeah. It turns out that Gene was great in that picture. But you said you had to light a fire under him because he had Egan... a lot of trouble going to the more opportunistic racist moments that that, that Egan that Egan specialized had in. Well, they did that, which I don't think Gene completely understood to survive. If they didn't behave like the bullies that they seemed to be in in that movie, they would have been killed. They, they, they wouldn't have lasted a week on the job. Hmm. That's what cops had to do then, hold court in the street. And that documentary that you made, which is called Thin Blue Line? I made a, one called Thin Blue Line. I made one called The People versus, versus Paul, Paul Crump, Crump, which saved Paul Crump from, uh, from the electric, electric chair. chair. And when you were making Thin Blue Line, were you welcomed by the – because it's a kind of secretive world, but you were going in there with, with cameras and doing a very authentic, realistic – Yeah, a small crew, two, three people at the most. So why did me. they accept you? Why didn't they just go, we don't want this snooping around? I imagine, as I reflect on it, that they showed me what they thought was safe. There were other aspects of the life that they would not expose me to, of course. And how did the People versus Paul Crump affect Paul Crump's um, death penalty? What happened with that? Well, I believe that he was uh, forced to confess to a murder, and he turned out at the time to be the longest-serving inmate on death row. Yeah. And I believe he was framed. And uh, I had a kind of a knee-jerk liberal reaction, and I thought that I could make a film that might get his story to the public. Yeah. It was nothing I could do with the law. He had already been twice... Uh, denied certiorari, which is a hearing, mm -hmm. by the Supreme Court of the United States. And he, when I met him, he had six months to live. And I was able to make this documentary that depicted the crime. I didn't know how to make a documentary, so I flashed back and staged the crime and how it was impossible for him to be identified as he was by his voice only. Yeah. Four words shouted through a mask. And 
I showed his rehabilitation in prison, and I filmed on death row for over a six-month period. And I actually witnessed a man die in the electric chair, his Mm -hmm. cellmate. Uh, So we made the film, and it was first shown to the governor of Illinois then, a man Mm -hmm. named Otto Kerner, who sent me a note saying, I've just seen your film. My parole and pardon board has voted two to one to let Mr. Crump die in the electric chair. But I was so moved by your portrait of him in your film that I'm going to pardon him to life imprisonment without possibility of parole, but I'm going to take away the death sentence. And it ter- Crump then served, I think, about another nine years right. and then was released. But he, he had trouble making it on the outside. Sure. He had by then been in prison for 44 years. 20 years older than me, and he said, well, boss, what did you think of uh, the stuff we shot? And I said, Bill, I think it's shit. I, I said, I've, I've, you have this great reputation. You haven't shown me a damn thing. And he took great umbrage at this. <laughs> and he said, you want to see some driving, huh? And I said, yeah, that's why we're here. And he said, all right, I don't know what you got scheduled tomorrow, but just put the car out on the street tomorrow morning. Come on out there at 8 o'clock, and you get in the car with me, and I'll show you some driving. And so I canceled what was scheduled. We went into the car, uh, which was... 
below the Coney Island elevated line. Mm -hmm. And we got in the car and I operated the camera. Because, because your cameraman didn't want to get in the car. Well, the cameraman and the cinematographer both had families yeah. and I was single. And Randy Jurgensen, one of the cops, uh, was on the floor in the front seat under a blanket with his badge handy. And I was in the back and Hickman drove for 26 blocks straight through traffic at 90 miles an hour. And I honestly thought that either we were gonna die or somebody else was, because he had that kind of balls. And- You, you creased the side of a bus and it's in the film. Yeah, all the, all, <laughs> all of the little collisions were accidental. They, none of them were planned. <laughs> I had a stuntman who came out and straightened out the fender or the bumpers or whatever after a lot of the takes where they weren't supposed to crash, yeah. but did. In uh, Live and Die in L.A., there is uh, uh, an extraordinary chase sequence which is the going the wrong way up on the freeway. on the Long Beach freeway. So d d tell me about shooting that because I remember again, you know, after you'd made French Connection, it's a lot to live up to with Live and Die in LA and everyone said, yeah, but it's going to have a cut and that chase in Live and Die I think is is really something. It's very difficult. It was then to do a believable and exciting chase scene. Yeah. Uh because you don't have the use of words. There's no dialogue anymore. It's yeah. pure images. And you've got to hold the audience with pure imagery, not unlike slapstick comedy. Mm -hmm. And the great, fortunately, the great chase scenes that have been done, I never saw before I did The French Connection or uh, To Live and Die in L.A., I never saw the Buster Keaton chase scenes until many years later, or I don't think I ever would have attempted a chase okay. scene. They are so great. And of course, there's no opticals. No, they it's all physical, yeah. do all that stuff, and they were death-defying. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't do anything like that today because it is threatening to human life. And I'd be very honest with you, Mark, I didn't think about that at the time. Because you were young and foolish? Well, yeah, and I I had a vision of what I wanted to see, and I didn't care what it took to get it. And the guys who went along with me shared that vision. <laughs> um, and I, I just wouldn't even attempt something like those scenes today. But I, when I look at them, I realize how viscerally strong they are. One of the best chase sequences you did is in Jade. Which well, I think the, that's the best chase scene. I which did. takes place at about three miles an hour because they're going through a parade. And then what was brilliant about it was it's how can we make this absolutely nail-biting? Well, it's not fast. It's a slow chase. Yeah, and it's during the... Uh, Chinatown Parade. So how did, did you come up with that? Or was yeah. It was San Francisco and they had a Chinatown Parade, but I had to restage the whole thing. It wasn't 
the time for the parade. But I thought it would be equally as interesting for the third chase I filmed to do a chase of inches. Yeah. And uh, instead of miles. I was thinking of it in uh, when I saw Sicario a couple of years ago. I thought Sicario was a really good thriller. And there's a scene when they're at the border and the traffic is at a standstill. And I thought that reminds me absolutely of uh, of the chase sequence in Jade. What's what's tense isn't the speed; it's the opposite. It's the stasis. It's the fact that that it's not moving. And I also I thought it was very you you loved Baby Driver and you were very supportive of, uh, of yeah, Baby Driver when I, it came out. I liked out. it a lot because of course Edgar Wright said that the primary inspiration for that was this those chase sequences in your films. I liked his film a lot. Yeah. And he made a, vi- a video at the bottom of the Exorcist steps of him holding a sign which said, thank you, Billy. Yes, I remember that. Are you still as excited by young filmmakers, new film and new talent as you used to be? Uh, whatever. I, I see them quite less. I can't. Well, I, I like the work of this young man, Damien Chazelle. Uh-huh. I think he's a brilliant filmmaker he made uh la la land la la land and, and whiplash whiplash and uh uh first man yeah um only those three films i think he's the real deal what is it that you like about what he does oh his work is original unique brilliantly done in all of the basic ways you know there aren't many uh like that uh I mean, to go out and recreate an MGM musical as he did with La La Land, I think is extraordinary. Now, he didn't have Fred Astaire or Sid Charisse, but he got those two actors to be pretty believable as sing, song and dance men and women. One of the things that's interesting about you, Billy, is that you've made films that have a you know a very dark edge and often end very ambivalently, but the films that you treasure the most are nothing like the films that you make. No. Uh, you, we, we had a conversation in Strasbourg in which you were talking about the great privilege of, uh, of meeting Chaplin at the Oscar. Oh my God, yes. Well, tell me that story because... When I won the Academy Award... I think for the first time there was an event that occurred after the presentation of the best picture. This is for French Connection. Yeah. And we didn't know what was going to happen. The people who were had won an award or presented an award and we were told to stay backstage on some risers. And all of a sudden during one of the commercials with the curtains closed to the public and the cameras this rather attractive young woman led this older man out by the hand to stand on a mark right where the curtains parted. And I didn't know who the hell it was. It turned out it was Una O'Neill who was married to Chaplin. And Chaplin had not been back in America for 25 years. He was run out of the country as a communist. Yes, and various other reasons. And now there he is standing there. And then we heard the voice of the president of the academy was a man named Daniel Taradash at the time. He was a very fine screenwriter. He wrote From Here to Eternity, among other great film scripts. 
And he gave a speech about the meaning of comedy and the importance of comedy in our lives. And then he stepped away and the curtains parted in a spotlight. The woman disappeared. And there standing alone in the spotlight is Charles Chaplin. And the audience got on their feet and screamed. They yelled and screamed for what seemed like forever. And then we were all asked to sing Chaplin's song, the song that he had written for the movie Limelight called Smile, which he wrote the music. And, yeah. the, and he won the Academy Award for writing the music. He, that was what he was, that was his Oscar. And we were asked to sing the song to him. The music director, I think, was Johnny Green at the time. He's a great MGM music director. And he conducted us, and Chaplin stood there, and we all sang Smile to him. And then he said a few words, very humble. He thanked the audience. And the curtains closed, and we all lined up to shake his hand. And I was standing in line behind Red Buttons. Do you remember yeah, him? Yeah, of course. Mark? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was a well-known comedian at mm -hmm. the time. I guess he had presented an award on the show. And I remember standing behind looking at Chaplin, who basically is the guy who threw the switch for movies. Yeah. He threw the on switch and movies happened. <laughs> um, and Red Button said to him, Mr. Chaplin, I just want to tell you that my two uh, grandchildren have seen your films and they love your films. And it makes them laugh every time they see you on film. And Chaplin's eyes teared up. I'll never forget this. It was so moving. His eyes teared up and he said to Red Buttons, he looked him right in the eye and he said, oh, thank you for telling me that. He said, I so love it when I can make the children laugh. This is one of the greatest moments I've ever experienced. This guy who was a master, who was a totally normal, down-to-earth sort of a guy who loved to make the children laugh. And I got to say hello to him and shake his hand, and he congratulated me. And I remember that more than accepting the Academy Award. Yeah. Oh, thank, thank you so much. An emotional moment for me. And words seem so futile, so feeble. I can only say that thank you for the honor of, of inviting me here. And oh, you're wonderful, sweet people. Thank you.
Now that brings the first part of this interview with the brilliant William Friedkin to an end. As I said, Billy and I got together because we were doing a commentary for Cruising, which is just coming out on Arrow Blu-ray. Do check out the Blu-ray and do check out that commentary and download next week's podcast for part two of this exclusive Kermode on Film interview with William Friedkin. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.